journey here through Luke. I don't remember when we started, but if you've been gone for the summer and you're back, you're probably surprised how little progress we made, right? But that's how we work, so. Judge not and you will not be judged. Uh, This morning we're covering a text that is probably more often quoted than any other text, John 3.16 included. Everyone loves to use the judge not that you be not judged. Inside the church, outside the church, you hear that thrown around a lot. Often it is um, used in such a way as to communicate, how dare you tell me that my beliefs are wrong? How dare you tell me that my approach to God, my way of getting to heaven is wrong? Who are you to judge me? Perhaps more often it's used just as a reason to excuse your moral, immoral conduct. Excuse the, your actions. How dare you judge me? I would say outside the church and inside the church, rarely is the verse used in context to communicate the truth that is supposed to be communicated through it. And so uh, the prayer is this morning that we'll settle into the context, find the application for our own lives. But so I'm not through the whole service making a bunch of caveats about what this text isn't saying. I'm just going to go up front and I'll go through five or six things that this text is not saying, and then hopefully I won't have to repeat it too often as we go through. First of all, in this text, it is not teaching that we are not to have biblical or moral discernment, judging what is good or evil, judging what is pleasing to God or not pleasing to God. All right, this isn't a a call for no discernment, no judgment at all. This text is not saying that we are not free to use the courts, the law of the land for protecting our freedoms, for uh, decisions to be made, protecting human rights. It's not a call against the law of the land, against judgments made that way. It's not a call for parents to not make a distinction between right and wrong and then look at your child and decide whether they are doing what is right or wrong. Judgments can be made there, need to be made there. A child be trained in godliness. This text isn't even saying that there is never an occasion for a brother or sister in Christ to offer correction and direction to another. There's obviously times when that is to take place. This text is not teaching something that's against church discipline. The Bible lays out clearly a process for discipline leading all the way to disciplining someone out of the body that you might pursue them in love and mercy and kindness. This text isn't teaching against that. And finally, this text isn't ultimately teaching that you must be perfect in every area of your life before you ever offer encouragement or instruction to someone else in an area of their life. There are cautions that are given, but if that were the case, then Pastor Adam and myself would never get to stand up here and speak to you, because believe it or not, we have not quite arrived yet. So it's getting at something different than, than some of those maybe misconceptions, those things that are laid out more often. What it is getting at is kingdom living. How to live as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. 
I want to step back for a moment, catch people up with where we're at. We, we looked in Luke 4 as Jesus, they're trying to keep Jesus in a specific town, and he tells them he needs to leave that town. And at the end of Luke 4, he gives the reason why. He must go from town to town proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, for this is the purpose for which he was sent. And so now we have laid out for us in the Gospel of Luke this message of the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom of God. And so we defined a little bit what is the kingdom of God. That can be tricky in the sense that Scripture sometimes comes at it a little different directions. We'll paint it, refer to something a little bit differently as it refers to the kingdom of God. And then it can be tricky because language today can be really sloppy as people talk about Maybe you building the kingdom or establishing the kingdom. What exactly is meant by the kingdom of God? So in Luke, we see kind of three major ways in which we talk about or look at the kingdom of God. All right, I'm going to get a little crowd participation. Can, how is the kingdom of, of God defined, especially as we see it in Luke? Can someone guess or someone know one of the three ways we've talked about in the past? How is the kingdom of God defined? Yes, God's rule and reign. At its very simplest, the kingdom is where the king is. That's what's going to be said later in Luke as the Pharisees look for how is the kingdom of God going to be established? Where is it? And the answer is the kingdom of God is in your midst. Why? Because Jesus is in their midst. The kingdom is God's rule and reign over God's people. At its very basic, simplest level, that is the kingdom of God. This is maybe a sub-point of that, but how else does Luke speak about the kingdom of God? But it speaks about the coming of the Messiah. I'm loud. It speaks about the coming of the Messiah. The establishment of the kingdom of God. Mark would say it this way in Mark chapter 1. As Jesus comes to earth, he says, Listen, now is the time. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus has arrived. The kingdom of God is the coming of the promised Messiah. The Old Testament sets this up all the way. There's, uh, you see it in um, prophecy. You see it foreshadowed. And now Jesus Christ has come, the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the kingdom of God. And then does anyone remember kind of the third way we see the kingdom of God that Luke is now really starting to develop over the last couple of chapters? The kingdom of God is the age to come, breaking in to the age that is passing away. So it's this idea of overlapping kingdoms, of the the, the age to come, all that is promised in the establishment of the kingdom of God, and it has invaded the darkness. It has broken into this age that is passing away. But we know the age that is passing away hasn't fully and finally passed away. And so that's the tension we live in, right? We are citizens of a heavenly kingdom dwelling in an age that is passing away, overlapping kingdoms. Does that mean the kingdom isn't real yet? No, it's definitely real. But it does mean the kingdom isn't fully and finally realized and consummated in that all sin is put away and every tear is gone and and all sorrow is gone. That's not our experience. Yet victory is assured at the cross and the resurrection, And so these kingdoms travel along together. 
And that is what we see then in Luke. Remember, we see Jesus Christ inaugurating the kingdom when he is born. Behold, the kingdom is at hand. He has inaugurated the kingdom with his coming. He then proclaims the kingdom. As he says he is going to do, he proclaims the kingdom. And that is Jesus Christ being prepared as they are... He's given to the Word, and they're amazed at His understanding of the Word. He is given to prayer. He experiences the baptism by John the Baptist. It talks about the Spirit coming upon Him, and He Spirit-empowered now, and He goes and He begins to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. And everyone is amazed at His authority because it's so different from the rabbis. It's so different from what they are used to hearing because He is proclaiming truth. He is proclaiming Himself as a fulfillment of truth, and He speaks with such authority. And so the inauguration of the kingdom, the proclamation of the kingdom. And then remember as we traveled through chapter 4 into chapter 5, now we start to see the demonstration of the kingdom. And Jesus Christ demonstrates that He is completely powerful over every physical domain and every spiritual domain. And He begins to heal people. And you see His power with a word to heal And he casts out demons and they tremble at his authority and they submit to him. And you see his power over the spiritual realm and you get glimpses, you get foreshadowing, you get to see this is the power of the kingdom. Because remember, this is the big picture. The mission of Jesus come to reverse the curse. To restore that image of God in us, to to heal our brokenness, to make us whole and new again. As He comes to reverse the curse, we see that in His healing of people. We see that in His casting out of the demons. And so He is establishing His kingdom. Now we transition once again, and you've probably seen it in the last few weeks, as as we come now to chapters 5 and chapter 6 and going on, and his teaching has taken a little bit of a turn once again as we look at the Beatitudes, for instance, that he places in here. Blessed are those who, and woe to those who. And it begins to kind of flip our thinking on its head. And here's what it's doing. It's saying, if you are truly disciples, citizens of the kingdom of God, this then is how you live as citizens of the kingdom of God in an age that is passing away. Jesus Christ has demonstrated it, and now he is instructing us, here's how you live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And he rebukes the Pharisees for their legalistic and um, pharisaical way of thinking and teaching, and and he begins to to uh, re-examine and let the people see, here's how the Sabbath actually works. Jesus Christ, rule and reign. You know, He is the ruler, the Lord of the Sabbath. And He removes it from that kind of list of things to do and don't to Jesus Christ being the Lord of the Sabbath and submission to Him and His rule and reign. And then it moved last week to a really hard call, I think, for all of us. And that is to love your enemy. That's what kingdom living looks like. Loving your enemy, pursuing those with good who haven't done good to you. Loving those who haven't loved you well. Pastor Adam explained, kind of stepping back the original context of enemy there. Yes, maybe in that original context, someone who's looking to end your life. The application definitely for us, and we'll continue to see it growing for us, is someone who is antagonistic to you, someone who, whether real or imagined, stands in the way of your goals and your happiness and, and your 
calling, whatever it might be. You're told to love them. And so now we come to our text, and there's just one simple point I want to make. We'll look kind of at at four things the text says, I think, to establish that. But here's the point. Your life as a kingdom citizen should be marked by mercy. Should be marked by mercy. Verse 36, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We pray in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. You realize your kingdom come, yes, in a sense of Christ's return and establish your kingdom, but even now your rule and your reign might the characteristics of that rule and reign be seen, especially in your church, that the fruits of the Spirit be among us. And this mark, this defining quality, we saw it all the way back, and I think it's chapter 3 or 4 of Luke, where, where Jesus quotes that passage in Isaiah 61. And he begins to give the characteristic of the kingdom, and it's marked by humility, and it's marked by mercy, and it's marked by forgiveness. So the point, your life as a kingdom citizen should be marked by mercy. We're going to look at four things, but before we do, I want to do one more thing here. I want us all to, well, first, I guess two things. Let's remember the context. The context is still set by love your enemies. So when we get into don't judge, forgive, all that, it's not the context of, like, don't judge the person who you love the most and agree with on everything. It's don't judge the one who hasn't loved you like they should have. Don't judge the one who, to you, seems like they're judging you all the time. Don't judge the one who maybe is holding a grudge and not offering or asking for forgiveness like, should, like they should be. We're still in the context of enemy in the sense of someone who can be antagonistic towards you. So that's the context in which these commands are given. Secondly, I want us all to humbly place ourselves under the text. So I'm going to do something here. Do not judge. All of us can fall prey to the, like a victim mentality. We, just, we all kind of feel like victims at times. So go ahead, everyone get in your mind. When I say do not judge, think of the person who you're thinking of already who judges you. You know, that's the first person you think of. Maybe it's more than one person. If they're in the room, don't look at them. That could get awkward. But just get them in your mind, all right? Because we tend to always think that. Like, already you're thinking, boy, that person should hear this sermon. All right, so think of that person. You can even rehearse, you know, just you got them in your mind, all right? Now, it's the last time you're allowed to think about them, all right? Put them out of your mind. And now think about yourself. (laughs) This text is for you. You are the one who judges. You are the one who can be critical. You are the one who doesn't show mercy. This text will tell us if you can only think of someone else, then you probably got a giant log in your own eye you can't see because you're so focused on the speck in someone else's eye. 
This text is for you. This text is for me. I can tell you, this text has been hugely convicting in my heart this week. Don't apply it to someone else. Apply it to yourself. Are you the one judging? Are you the one lacking mercy? All right. Now that we're all on the same page and we're all applying it to ourselves, point number one is there is the command here in the text. The command, and it is be merciful. Be merciful. First, you need to be merciful in your judgment. Judge not. It's interesting, in the Greek, there's kind of a, there's a word used for judge, and then that same word is used with a bit of a prefix on it that kind of carries the idea of with judgment. And there seems to be a clear distinction made as you go through Scripture. There's a sense of looking with discernment, that is to judge, and then there's the idea of living with the attitude of always being with judgment, and that is to be judgmental. And there's a very big difference. It's not judging with discernment. It's the idea of being judgmental. One of the commentators just defined it this, defined it this way. Here, we were to understand judging this way. is considering the faults of our neighbor with a look only sharpened by mistrust and not tempered by any love or any self-knowledge. Don't be judgmental, it's telling you. And don't be judgmental, specifically, toward your enemy. A judgmental person is this. A judgmental person is someone who reaches quick, ungracious, and often unjust conclusions about someone else. We're applying it to ourselves. I'm applying it to myself. To reach quick, ungracious, and often unjust conclusions about someone else. It almost always considers that person in the worst possible light, giving them no benefit. The benefit you want for yourself, you would don't give to them. Judgmental people make dogmatic conclusions on others' motives and refuse to th- see things from a different perspective. Oh, I, I'm guilty of that. Are you guilty of that if something happens and you start to make conclusions on what their motive was that made them do or not do that or say or not say that to you and it's kind of colored in the worst possible way judgmental people often lack any sense of proportion that is to say the smallest offense can be met with the most over the top reaction your loose word your unkind comment your whatever can be met with an over-the-top reaction. A, judge per, a judgmental person gives little room or space for someone who has made a poor choice of words or had a poor reaction or maybe had a bad, bad day. There's no room, there's no space for that sort of understanding from a judgmental person. Finally, a judgmental person does not see growth and grace in another but just sees the shortcoming and where the growth needs to happen and gives no time for that growth to happen. Again, this text demands that we step back and not think, oh, that's happened to me. 
but truly look in at your own heart and your own mind, your own life, and think either verbally or in my heart, am I living this way of one who is super judgmental, super to rush to a conclusion on someone, always moved by mistrust and assuming the worst? That's not kingdom living. Judge not that you be not judged. I can often, that sort of spirit can exist in the church. R.C. Sproul, there's a quote from him in a, as he looked at this text. He says, Jesus is talking here about an attitude, a mindset that is sometimes found within the church to the church's embarrassment. It is a mindset of contentiousness, a mindset of criticism. The basic posture that we are to have towards the world is that of charity that covers a multitude of sins. God has not called us to be the policemen of everyone's decisions and the policemen of society, but He has called us to discern the difference between good and evil. He goes on to say, there is a time and a place for the church to exercise prophetic criticism not only to its members, but to the world as well. But a negative spirit we are to resist with all of our heart and all of our mind. That it's easy to just make huge conclusions and sweeping negative, judgmental comments. As you go through the Proverbs, I just highlighted a few, but the kind of spirit and attitude that is, is given is not that that spirit, Proverbs 19.11, a man's wisdom gives him patience. It is his glory to overlook an offense. Proverbs 12.16, a vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. Proverbs 20 and verse 3, it is an honor for a man to keep aloof from strife, but every fool will be quarreling. Proverbs 17.9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 10, 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. I'm not going to linger as long on the other points as I am on this judgmentalism. But I think we need to be careful, especially when, like our church, you take a firm stand on doctrine, that you have affirmations and you have denials. And you stand solidly on that affirmation. You don't want to be swayed from what the Word of God says. Creeping in can become a spirit that is very judgmental to anyone who would dare differ with you. It's important that we not sway from doctrinal stance, but we have a spirit that is not judgmental in that. Think back to conversations you have, conversations with your spouse, maybe conversations about your spouse, text, email, social media, the whole gamut there. Are we doing what we can to guard our neighbor's good name? Or are we quickly coming to conclusions on people and sharing it with everybody? Do we look for someone who's piling on insults and just if it seems popular, we start piling on top of it? 
We need to be people who love mercy and compassion and are not quick to judge, who are not judgmental. So mercy in our judgment, there should be mercy in your forgiveness. We should always be people who are marked by being quick to forgive. We should love to forgive. Not just the person who asks for forgiveness with just the right amount of contrition and in a timely manner and in a way that pleases you and has proven that they'll never do it again. But offering forgiveness as quickly and as joyously as you can. You know the passage in Matthew 18. Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Peter thinking that would be a big number. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In that there is no limit. I mean, that's hard to do. I've been on both ends of that. Someone comes and they ask you for forgiveness and you're all excited about it and you offer them forgiveness and like a week later they do the exact same thing to offend you. And they ask for forgiveness again. You're like, okay. And a week later it's the same thing. You're like, it's hard to keep that attitude of forgiveness. But I've been on the other end too where I've realized, man, that's been a sin in my life. That's been a way I've been negligent or offended somebody and you go and ask them for forgiveness and then a month later you realize wow I've been doing the exact same thing for this past month that I did before we all experience that with the Lord don't we the sin you struggle with maybe of the tongue or maybe your imagination are given to lustful thoughts and in you go to the Lord and you pour out your heart and you ask for forgiveness and the next day you go right back to it You ask for forgiveness, the next day you go back to it. By the Spirit, you should be seeing some victory in that area, but don't grow defeated in the sense of, God doesn't want to hear me confess this once again. Yes, He does. Confess it. Repent. By the Spirit, live according to God's grace. But forgiveness over and over again. Here's a a quick definition of forgiveness. From Thomas Watson. I've used it before, but here's what forgiveness looks like. It's when we strive against all thoughts of revenge, when we will not do our enemies mischief, but wish them but wish well to them, when we grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them. Which leads us then to be merciful in our giving. I think what that is doing, the one emphasis I want to make with that is just build on what Pastor Adam said last week, and that is that there is an active sense of your showing mercy. It's not just passive in that I'll sit back and won't attack them. You need to pursue them with good. Pursue them with kindness. Pursue them with forgiveness. Pursue them generously. It's the same thing with loving your enemy. The answer isn't, I'll just avoid them at all costs. No, it's how do I pursue them? So there is an active sense here to our demonstrating mercy in our judgment, mercy in our forgiveness, mercy in our giving. So that is the command here in the text. There's a promise here with the text, and that is you reap what you sow. 
So point two is the promise. You reap what you sow. Look at verse 37 and 38. It says, Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. It's kind of that promise of you reap what you sow, both at a human level and a divine level. I think at the human level, it's more of a proverbial wisdom. You might not always get exactly tick for tack. There might be someone who never repays you with kindness. But typically, proverbially, if you are someone who is marked by graciousness and mercy, you're going to live and exist in relationships where people are merciful and gracious and forgiving back to forgiving towards you. It's proverbial wisdom. It might not always happen exactly like that, but that's generally the case. If you feel like, man, why is every relationship I have always so tense and there's always major conflict going on? It's easy to like point to everybody else, but very likely you can look inwardly. <laughs> Am I lacking mercy? Am I lacking graciousness? Am I lacking compassion? Am I just too quick to judge? And I draw a conclusion immediately on someone. You reap what you sow, and that's the principle being laid here. But then I think it advances even farther that on a divine level, it's absolutely true. That's not to say that if I show mercy, I've now merited or favored mercy. Or if, if I forgive someone else, now I've merited forgiveness in the sense of like you're kind of, this is how why God is going to be merciful for me, because I did it just right. That's not what the text is teaching. But the text is very clear that the kingdom is for those who have received mercy and for those who show mercy. The kingdom is for the forgiven and for the forgiving. For one who shows no mercy, is, is quick to rush to judgment, has no room to offer forgiveness to anyone, that person, the Scripture is clear, doesn't realize their need for forgiveness and mercy, hasn't experienced that overwhelming mercy and forgiveness from the Lord. A person is not a kingdom person who isn't both forgiven and forgiving, who isn't receiving mercy and giving mercy. That's not to say if you struggle with forgiveness in a specific relationship or you react wrongly once, well, you're out of the kingdom of God. It's saying generally, are you marked this way? Just listen to a a few of these texts. Matthew 6, 14 and 15, following the Lord's Prayer. If you forgive men their trespasses, your Father who is in heaven will forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. Mark 11, verses 25 and 26. And whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father who is in heaven forgive you. Matthew 18, going on, following this parable, verses 23 and 25, the conclusion is, And the Master was angry, and he handed him over to the jailers until he pay back all that he was owed. If you react this way, it says, So will my Father who is in heaven also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your hearts. If we hold fast to an unforgiving spirit, if we are unruling to show mercy, 
The scripture is clear. We have not received mercy and forgiveness. We are not kingdom people because one who is forgiven is also forgiving. Not perfectly, but they are marked by that characteristic. One who has received such amazing mercy from a father demonstrates mercy. So then we come to this illustration that it gives here in verse 38. It says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. Here there's an agricultural, so we're still looking at kind of that divine, you reap what you sow. It's an agricultural metaphor of, of when they would bring grain to give to somebody, to either trade or to sell. They want to make sure they give them the right quantity. So if you could think maybe if you've ever gathered up leaves in a a bag or a trash can. Let's say you have a trash can. You rake your leaves. You get a handful. You put it, and you almost fill the trash can with one handful. But if you shake it around a little bit, the leaves settle down. And then you can get another handful in there. You shake it again, settle down some more. Then you start pressing it down. You realize, wow, I got a lot of room. And so you keep doing this, and now you have just a little left in your pile, and you want to get it in. So you press it, and it's, it's shaken down. It's pressed down. It's overflowing. The point is here that it's not like you're ever going to offer forgiveness and show mercy and outdo the Lord or what the Lord requires. <laughs> you will always be outdone by the Lord. You'll never reach his measure of mercy, his measure of forgiveness. So if you feel like, wow, I think I've made it to the limit, you're wrong. He'll always repay you, or not even repay you, you always will be acting in a way that just barely begins to touch the amount of forgiveness and mercy that has been shown. So that is what that illustration there is teaching us in a divine level. We'll always be on the short end of the stick when it comes to comparing our mercy and forgiveness to the Lord. All right, so there's the command, there's the promise. Thirdly, we see the example, and that is to be merciful because Jesus is merciful. I read several commentators on how this middle parable of the blind following the blind, the teacher, relates exactly to what's above and below it. And almost everyone has a different opinion. But I, I think from context we can get a decent way of forward that seems to make sense of it. He begins his parable there in verse 39, can a blind man lead a blind man? That is a common phrase back then, both secular and sacred. It's commonly used today too, the blind leading the blind idea. I think what Jesus is doing is specifically going at the Pharisees, the scribes, and those who consider themselves religious leaders, trying to lead others along, and he's calling it the blind leading the blind. Like, you need to be better at picking your teachers. (laughs) These Pharisees aren't getting it right. These scribes aren't getting it right. It's even, I think, looking down to the what we'll end with, with the speck in one eye and the log in the other. It's, you know, I have a log in my eye and I'm trying to lead along this guy with a little problem in his life. It's the blind leading the blind. He's saying, you know, calling out the Pharisees and scribes, they're being blind, they're not getting it right. Why are you following them? And then he moves on and contrasts it with himself as a teacher. It says in verse 40, a disciple is not above his teacher, 
Jesus Christ has called himself the way, the truth, and the life. He is the light shining in the darkness. He is not blind. He is the teacher, and as kingdom citizens, he is the king. He is our, our prophet. He is our priest. He is the one we are following. And he's telling us at one level to submit to his teaching. You don't have a better way than Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to say, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. And I think we're called back then to look at Jesus Christ as he lives. How does he act? He is merciful. He is forgiving. He is mistreated. He doesn't feel, he doesn't consider himself above the people, but is merciful and kind and quick to forgive and pities. He's saying, who are you as disciples to think that you're above that? Or you don't need to act that way. That you can be judgmental and don't have to mess with all that. He's saying, when you are fully trained, you will be like your teacher. It's the opposite of how we tend to think. Like the more education we have, the more Bible we understand, the more kind of, you know, brash and harsh we can be in the way we handle people. I've got it all figured out. I don't need to listen to you. He's saying, no, the truth is opposite. The more you learn about Christ, the more you see Him, the more compassionate and the more merciful you will become in the way you treat others. We have the example in Jesus Christ. The teacher is not above, or the disciple is not above his teacher. We see Jesus Christ acting mercifully, forgiving, compassionate. The more we understand the Word, the less we should become arrogant and brash and running over people with it and and impatient with those who are slow to come along. But we should be moved with mercy and compassion the more we become like Christ and understand His teaching. And then finally, we have the reality. We have the command, the promise. The example, the reality, and the reality is what we started with. The reality is this, you need mercy. Show mercy. Don't be judgmental and unforgiving because you're not the spiritual giant you think you are. Pointing right back at me. Apply it to yourselves, not to the person who you stopped thinking about a while ago. Because if you're still thinking about that person, you're falling exactly into this trap of so focused on that speck in their eye that you don't see the huge log in your own eye. We're all masters of finding faults in others, and we're all quite inept at finding faults in ourselves. So here's the call, the principle here, is that examination, criticism, whatever it is to be, should start at home. Just start with your own heart and your own life. Not a defeating wallow in your sin type of way, but an examination that you are concerned about reforming your own heart and your own mind in pursuit of Christ. Not everyone else reforming and conforming because they're standing in your way of happiness. Just think about the example. I mean, Jesus gives an absurd example because this is how absurd it is when we stand in this sort of place of judgment over someone. It would be like, okay, let's say this beam here, and I I come up to this metal beam, I got a little drill, I'm drilling, and a little shaving of metal goes over and gets in Michael's eye. So he's got just a little shaving of metal. As I'm drilling here, those bolts come loose, 
I don't know how it happens, but somehow it falls, and the whole beam just like gets stuck in my face. All right? So I got like a 12-foot beam now as I'm turning around. So I finish, and I look over, and I'm like, Michael, you got a speck of metal in your eye. Like, how could you be so careless? How did that get there? You look like an idiot. I mean, what's going on? And so, you know, I'm looking at Michael, just unbelievable that he has this shaving of metal in his eye. Meanwhile, while I turn, you know, I'm taking out the communion cups and everyone else. I got this beam through my face. Yet I think I can see good enough to take care of the speck in his eye. Let me go get it. Uh, you know, I can approach him. and t- Okay, it, it's such an absurd picture. That's exactly what's being said here. And the, the point is, we're completely blind because we don't know we have that. I don't know I have a 12... 14-foot beam sticking out of my face. I just know that Michael's got a speck of metal in his eye. And I can't stand to look at him anymore until he gets it out. And he's saying, when you walk around with this judgmental attitude of, I can so quickly see the fault in your eyes, I can see your fault, and I know your motive behind it, and I know, and I'm ready to condemn, and you are worthless to me now, very often, very often we're struggling with the exact same sin and that's why we see it so easily in someone else. Have you ever had that realization all of a sudden that I have it with, it's not sin with my wife, but just like little things she'll do that I find annoying and I'll realize I do that all the time. Like why is when she does it one time it annoys me and I like live my whole life that way? We kind of, we have that. We're so like the things we struggle with we can immediately see in someone else. And so then he attaches the big word to the end of it. You hypocrite. (laughs) You know, Christians can be called hypocrites all the time. And in one level, we always live as hypocrites. As preachers, you always live with a level of hypocrisy, demanding, not demanding, but calling people to believe and obey the gospel when you know you don't believe it and obey it perfectly like you should. But the hypocrisy here is, I think we've seen in four ways as we've gone through the text. We fall prey to hypocrisy when we underestimate how sinful we really are. When we begin to think we've arrived, that person's sinful. When you begin to underestimate how sinful you really are, you fall prey to hypocrisy. We fall prey to hypocrisy when we conclude that our sin is not that bad. You know, we're we're such kind merciful judges towards ourselves, but nearly not that way to others. And it's easy for us to minimize our own sin and maximize someone else's. At least I'm not. At least I'm not. When that happens, you fall prey to hypocrisy. We fall prey to hypocrisy when we overestimate our ability to deal with other people's sin. I'm not talking about as a kind friend approaching someone graciously, but when you start to think, I've arrived, and you begin to overestimate your ability to deal with someone else's sin, it becomes like me trying to get the speck out of Michael's eye when I have a beam that won't let me get within six feet of him. If I'll pray to hypocrisy, when we begin to think we can deal with other people's sin, 
We overestimate our ability. Finally, we fail, we fall prey to hypocrisy when we fail to confess our sin before we confront someone else. Again, there's always a problem, but it's always out there. They're the, if everyone else, if all of you would just change, then I would be happy and fulfilled. Like, you, you don't understand it. Like, no, I don't need to change. I've got to figure it out. I'm heading the right path. You need to learn to get along with me. If there's never an evaluation of a, a repentant heart looking to become more like Christ yourself and to reform and, and to move, be moved by the gospel in obedience and belief, you're going to fall prey to hypocrisy when you start demanding it and confronting others with no examination, no confrontation of your own sin. No one likes someone who is critical, judgmental, ungracious, unforgiving, and hypocritical. No one likes that person. Yet, if we're not careful, we can become as individuals that person. And our tendency, our nature is not to see it. We need to open up the Word. We need to give ourselves to prayer. We need to begin to see if we're seeing things in everyone else, perhaps it's time to examine our own hearts and our own lives. No one likes a church that is those things. We need to guard against being a church that is hypercritical and judgmental of everyone. The gospel of the kingdom is marked by mercy and forgiveness. That's the beauty of the message. As citizens of the kingdom, we should be marked by the same things. Mercy, compassion, forgiveness. Let's pray as we take a moment here, reflect on the word and transition into the table of the Lord.